It is so great. And we're just delighted that you're all here this morning. Uh, those that are watching by live stream, we're glad you're here as well. I'd like for you to take your Bibles, and if you have a device, take that as well, and turn to uh, the book of Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament. You might have to look in the table of contents, which is okay. Nobody will look. Uh, just sneak over there and look and see the page number. In my Bible, it's page 790, so to see if that will help you out. Uh, Zechariah 3, and uh, we'll get there in a few moments. Um, <clears throat> My name is Chris, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I was very grateful for the worship team today. Thank you, Nathaniel, and Jamie, and Patrick, and Will, and Virginia. What a great time. It's very, very good. And thank you, Will, for helping us uh, uh, at the end as we just get to sit in his presence for a moment. Um, you know, in a few weeks, we will celebrate uh, the most significant days in the Christian calendar. Um, when 2,000 some years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and confronted the religious and political order of the day. And he then laid down his life. And he died upon a cross, a Roman cross, for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again. As his disciples, we believe this to be the most pivotal event in all of human history. Everything our lives uh, are built upon, everything that is in our lives, it's seen through the prism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's what we build our lives on. It comes not only from scripture, but it's a historical event. Everything in the Bible, everything in our faith is built upon this truth. And all our reasons to hope are found in this event. And so I thought as Easter approaches, be just in a few weeks from now, that we would take the next several Sundays and look at its significance and its power in our lives today. But as we look back to Holy Week, um, to find the hope for our day, we need to be reminded that there was a day in which people were looking forward to that hope. There was a moment when God's people had not yet received the promise that we have received, and they were looking forward to that coming. In fact, the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament points to this moment. The whole story is pointing towards Jesus the appointed one who would come and right the people of God, make right for them the way they should live and establish a new and living way. It is the new covenant. It's the benefit of what we have today. One of the most vivid examples of this is found in a vision given to the prophet Zechariah. Um, it's a vision, it's one of eight visions actually, uh, it's the fourth vision in eight in Zechariah. And he has been giving these visions to encourage the people of Israel who are returning from Babylon. And it's about 500 years or so before Jesus even was born. At that time, of Zechariah's time, Israel, Judah, 
had been in exile. They were nothing more than a tiny remnant. They were a small minority with a half-built temple that was in full disarray and city walls that were broken down, leaving them completely unprotected. And so this, this little band of people, they were starting all over in a land that had been desolate for 70 years. And all of this had taken place because their forefathers had messed up over and over and over again. Their forefathers had not listened to God. They had not returned to him. They had, they had not listened to his prophets. They had actually resorted to worshiping other gods. And in so doing, God dealt with their sin and their idolatry. But now, in Zechariah's time, he is drawing his people back. He is restoring them. He is sending words through prophets like Zechariah to encourage them to trust him, to come back to him, and that he would deal with their guilt and their inferiority. And so here's that fourth vision of the eight in Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. You know, this feels like a courtroom scene. Um, court TV, Old Testament style. It's, uh, you've got the current high priest of the Jewish people, a man named Joshua, who appears to be the defendant. And he is standing before the Lord or as he is called in some instances, the angel of the Lord. Probably the same, just two different names for the one. And in addition to these two standing in this celestial um, courtroom, we have Satan, who could best be described as a prosecuting attorney. And he is leveling charges and accusations at the high priest of God. Just think what Satan must have been saying. How can this priest stand before the Almighty? He's unclean. He's unfit. How can these people still be called a holy nation? Aren't they the ones who broke the law and who worshiped other gods? Aren't they the ones who rebelled against Jehovah? Why should they be accepted back? Why should he stand before the holy? How can they be called God's people? Now, I'm about to be Captain Obvious here. <clears throat> but just in case you didn't know, Satan is still accusing people. He is still leveling accusations just as he was in this scene we read in Zechariah. He hasn't changed his tactics. 
He uses the same old playbook over and over and over again. Calling into question God's choice of redemption. Questioning the wisdom of saving a wretch like me. Still bringing up our sin, our guilt, our shame, and throwing it in our faces. Don't be surprised when you hear accusations in your head or from others just surrounding you where you feel that you're dealing with an attorney who's trying to interrogate you and charge you with something that you're probably guilty of. Because the same one who accused Joshua in that day is the one who is accusing the brethren today. In fact, that's one of his names. Not only the father of lies and the great deceiver, but also the accuser of the brethren. It's his same old playbook over and over again to accuse you. But notice who answers Satan. It's not the accused. Look at verse two again. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now listen, it's one thing for you and me to rebuke Satan. We're told to do that in scripture. God has given us the authority to do so. But I want you to know that when the Lord chooses to rebuke Satan, he's rebuked. There's no doubt as to what has happened and there is no squirming out of the rebuke that comes from the Lord Almighty. And in this case, the Lord himself has rebuked Satan. He didn't say to Joshua, rebuke Satan. Did you see that? He rebuked Satan. When you have this kind of God fighting on your behalf, doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, and then he himself speaks to your enemy and rebukes him, he's worthy of your praise. God not only rebukes Satan, in the midst of his rebuke, he makes abundantly clear exactly who it is that he chose. He said, the Lord who chose Jerusalem rebuked you. <laughs> it's the same for you and me. You know that, right? It's God's choosing us that quiets the accusation of the enemy. God's choice of you is the greatest defense that you have when the enemy chooses to accuse, lie to you, and try to rob from you. Just simply remind him, you're not your own. You belong to Jesus. He has to take it up with the owner, not the tenant. God chose us while we were yet sinners, the Bible says. He chose us not only just to justify us, but also to complete that which he began in us, to purify us. That's his promise. And because he has chosen us, we can be assured that he will preserve us to the end. Now, I realize this brings up a question in many people's minds theologically surrounding eternal security surrounding whether you can turn away from the Lord and be lost while he supposedly had you found. 
Uh, in my own journey, I have found days of great commitment to him. And I have had days where I was wavering really, really badly. And people could look at me and say, was he even saved? I don't know that I want to get into the weeds of trying to argue something, but I will say this to you. The arc of what we see is oftentimes too short. Does that make sense? We look like this. We look like A to B equals C. Jesus looks like A to Z because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. His arc is still rising while we think our arc has fallen. If Judas could be with Jesus for three and a half years and walk with him, be cared by Jesus, be, wa be washed by Jesus, his feet washed on the very night that he would betray him, I'm gonna let Jesus take care of whether you were saved or not if you fall. For me, I believe that God keeps those who belong to him. And Jesus said as much, I have not lost one that the Father has given me. So if you're sitting here today and you're concerned that maybe you sin too much and you don't have a place, that's reason enough to believe that's not true. Because you're here and because God's still at work and his ark is still rising and there is still a story to be written and at the end of the day, it's about him keeping you, not just you keeping yourself. Those weren't even my notes. It's the same for us. God's choosing quiets the enemy. You know, what comes next in this vision is really very special to me, especially being an old Eagle Scout. It's a verse that says, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? I want you to imagine if we're out at a campsite. Maybe we're all together. And there's a roaring campfire going. And everybody is gathering sticks and branches and logs and throwing it into the fire to make it bigger and bigger and brighter. When someone inadvertently takes the, the stick that you gathered a few days ago and have been carving on all week long and throws it in the fire. That stick was very special to you. You worked very hard to find that stick. Um, it was sturdy, it was perfect as far as the grip, it was straight, it was something you could work on and carve and make it your very own. It was good for walking and defending against all those critters out there, uh, including Bigfoot uh, or that ninja that, held, that hid behind the bushes. Uh, Eagle Scouts have wild imaginations. So... It was a great stick to you, and when you realize that someone has picked it up and thrown it in the fire and it's starting to burn, you jump into action. You, you try to kick it out of the fire if you can to, to retrieve it. You, you may not be able to do that, so you grab an iron tool and you reach in for it. You risk yourself to grab it back out of the fire, and when you do, you extinguish and stamp out all the flames. And then you go to knocking off all the char and the burnt wood to restore it to the stick it was intended to be. 
That's what God did for his people. That's what God does for us. He snatched his burning stick out of the fire. They were helpless to save themselves. But God plucked them out of this Babylonian exile where they were burning and wasting away. He retrieved them back to himself. He called them home. And that's what God does for us as well. For we were dead in our trespasses. But Jesus, but Jesus, while we were there, helpless and dead, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. That's why Satan can't make his accusation stick against you. Because you're the stick God rescued. But the imagery doesn't just stop there. This vision continues beyond the burning stick. Can someone turn the air down just a bit, Bobby? It's getting warm in here to me. I don't know if it's just me or what, but, um, but you'll have to just be cool a minute. So it's probably on heat, so just make sure it's on air, okay? Um, <clears throat> the imagery goes way beyond the burning stick, and it's to a priest, a priest who is shamefully dressed in what the Bible calls filthy clothes. And we're not, we're not talking about um, just dirty or muddy or stained clothes. In fact, the word for filth here is associated in Hebrew with human excrement. I don't mean to be gross, but that's dirty. That's filthy. That's smelly. That's something that nobody wants to be around. So while this high priest should be the one who was dressed in fine linen, should be the one ritually clean from head to toe, should be the one sanctified as he stands before God. Instead, he's standing there before God in foul, filthy, smelly clothes. All of which represents the sin of the people. Look what happens next in verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes, praise God. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. You know what's funny to me about these verses is that Zechariah seems to be so emotionally engaged in this vision that he can't keep quiet. He's watching all this and hearing them say something, and then as God is doing something, he's like, and give him the hat too. Put the turban on him, Lord. Zachariah, you're supposed to be watching this. This is not participation time. But... Zechariah can't help himself. He is so excited about what is happening here. He's like, yes, yes, I see it. Now, now put the turban on him too, Lord. 
He's anticipating what God was already going to do because the Lord put the turban on him. You know, the turban in the high priest costume, excuse me, not costume, um, maybe, in the high priest attire uh, was a very significant piece. Exodus 28 tells us about it. Exodus 28, verse 36. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. On this gold plate, you're to inscribe holy to the Lord. And then fasten that gold plate or fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate. Whatever their gifts may be, And it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they may be acceptable to the Lord. I joined with Zechariah. Put the turban on him too. Put the turban with the inscription that says, holy to the Lord on the priest. Zechariah knows the turban inscribed with such would be a public testimony of God's forgiveness, of God's justification, and of God's acceptance of his people. So yeah, put the hat on him too. This whole vision is some 2,500 years ago. It happened a long time ago. But it is not only establishing Joshua to be the high priest for his day, It's also speaking to each one of us who will come after him, who were called to be a kingdom of priests to our Lord and Father. For just like Joshua, God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He takes away our sin. He removes our spiritual filth. And he adorns our head with his holiness. The thing we know from another prophet, Isaiah, who lived 200 years before Zechariah, is that the promised Messiah would not only take off those filthy clothes, he would put them on himself. You'd think he'd put it in the cleaners or something. Wash it somehow celestially. But instead, this one, the suffering servant who would bear our sins, for the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He took those filthy garments and he put them on himself. It's an incredible exchange. We call it the divine exchange. Our filthy rags for his robes of righteousness. Garments suitable for wearing not only at a banquet feast in heaven, but also priestly work here on earth. Look how the vision continues and concludes in verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring, I am going to, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on it that 
there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it. Sound familiar? Says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Verse 10. And in that day, each of you, each of you, each of you, that includes us, will invite your neighbors to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. God tells Joshua that he and his fellow priests are going to be a sign. They're going to be a symbol. They're going to symbolize things that are yet to come. Signs that point to the coming servant, the Messiah, who is not only the great high priest, but also the king. The Messiah, who is the branch, the branch from King David's family tree, or probably better described, a little shoot that's growing up from what looks like a dead stump. And he, that small branch that shoots up, these guys are pointing to him. They're pointing to the one who will come and deal once and for all with the sin, remove it all in one single day. And he is like a jewel that brightly shines with seven eyes, which you can also see described in the book of Revelation where it says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain and seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Do you see the symbolism? Do you see the fact that these servants that are with Joshua, his fellow priest, and he as the high priest, has not only been pulled out of the fire like a burning stick, he's not only been re-robed, cleansed from his sin and the people's sin, not only had the filthy rags removed, but the great garments of God put on him with the turban, the authority of God and the holiness of God resting on him. But they would also point to the one that would do this for all who would receive him. The branch. To make it even more powerful of a connection. The high priest's name was Joshua. Joshua in the Hebrew means Jesus. And literally it's translated, God rescues. How could you not see it? How could you miss this? They're pointing to the one who saved us from our sin. And through him, God will achieve a perfect cleansing of his people, removing the sin of the land in one single day. We know what that day was. We're about to celebrate it here in just a few weeks. And in so removing it, allowing each of us, you and me, each of us, to invite our neighbors to come and join us under the vine and the fig tree. With such a prophetic vision pointing to Jesus, I'd like to close with a few questions for each of us. What will be the Lord's response over you as you stand before him on the day of judgment? Even while Satan brings accusation against you. 
Will you hear the Lord rebuke Satan on your behalf? Declaring you to be chosen of God, therefore nullifying every accusation that the enemy would level? Or will the rescue he offered be something you refused? Are you a burning stick? Needing him to snatch you from the fire? Are you charred from its effect? Needing him to restore your life to what he intended? Don't be the guy or girl who refuses his offer, his salvation. Don't be the one who hangs on to his own filthy clothes. But receive Christ. Allow him to disrobe all of the filth away from you and to adorn you with his robes of righteousness and place on your head a turban of holiness. Receive Christ, for all who have received him are children of God. Through faith and having been baptized into Christ, you can now be clothed with Christ and his righteousness. My challenge to each of us today listening is to receive the free gift of God. Amen. My wife is going to come. We're going to pray for you, and she's going to share what the Lord's put on her heart, and then we'll have a closing song and have some time for prayer. Because it's so important to remember, to rehearse, to practice what we know about the Lord, I think the, the calendar of events like Easter are rhythmic for a reason. We could celebrate them once and say, yes, we did that, we learned those lessons. But the reality is that in our daily lives, we unlearn a lot. <laughs> and it's important that we pause and, and um, give intent to the important things. This message today isn't just for somebody who may not have yet experienced that initial gift of salvation where they've experienced the exchange, that first exchange of filthiness for his righteousness. Right. But it's for all of us who leak, who live in a world that mingles with us and distorts our our life of grace, um, either just because it's the world we live in or because of our own choices. Um, there's the willing sin and then the sin by accident. It all happens. Um, and it's important that we take this moment to say, what today does God want us to exchange? Um, I was struck in worship about something this morning that I felt like God touched in my heart and said he wasn't pleased with that. And I responded to him in the moment, but as Chris was preaching, I thought, yes, thank you, God, that the gift of exchanging what is not good yeah. for what is good, what is pleasing to him, is always available to us. So That's right. my prayer for us this morning is that 
regardless of whether you need the first exchange or a subsequent exchange, that you let God do what he likes to do. That's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is still true. That what you paid, you paid once and for all. That in a single day, every iniquity, past, present, and future, was taken care of. And that we can come into your presence without shame and without guilt because your exchange is enough. So, Father, I pray for anyone here who hasn't accepted the reality that they can't take off their own filthiness, that they would be filled with faith to believe that you can and you will. And then, Father, for people who've come to know you as their Lord and Savior but have gotten lost or distracted along the way, Father, that we would be faithful in this moment to acknowledge your gift, to put out on the table all the things that you don't want us to keep, and to leave them with you, and to step away with what you provide, the gift of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, a life of purpose and fruitfulness. There is nothing too difficult for you, Father. And we welcome your work in our lives. Yes, we do. We thank you, Lord, for the for the free gift of salvation that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to die for us, that our sins, though fully our responsibility, would no longer be held against us because you took what was rightfully ours and you put it upon yourself and gave to us what was only rightfully yours that we might be called the righteousness of God. The accusations, <laughs> they're mostly true. If we wanted to look at the facts, what the enemy tells us is oftentimes truthful. But what makes the difference is not whether we did it or didn't do it. What makes the difference is what you did. Yes, Lord. And you paid for our sin and you redeemed us and brought us out of darkness and into light and you have forgiven us and restored us and knocked the charred wood off and you're making us useful again in your hand I pray Lord for everyone that's listening today for those that may have never responded to you in the first place but also for those as Donna has prayed that find themselves in a mixed place where the mixture of the world and worldliness has diluted our testimony and our witness and our life. Lord, purge us of those things. Let us lay aside those things which so easily entangle us that we might run the race that is before us, that we might sense the power of God flowing through us.
and that we might be a witness to the world that is all around us. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, and may your spirit continue to work in us deeply, changing us, restoring us, and making us useful. In Jesus' name, amen.